Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church Podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, Freedom Church. My name is Joel Vargas, and I'm one of the worship pastors here. And guys, we're wrapping up the Minor Prophets series. This is the last one. And I know if you've been anything like me, these have just pressed in. The, the minor prophets have gotten really deep into your business. And the meeting will be over today. Not really, because we should continue to read God's word in the minor prophets. But I'll tell you that I've read through the minor prophets, but they haven't read through me. And it wasn't until we really started going through this series that it just came to life. I, I preach a lot of sermons, and I'll, I'll have to admit, this has probably been one of the most difficult ones that I've had to swallow a lot with. And I'll tell you that it's been it's been on my heart for a long time, and I'm really glad uh, to share God's word this morning. So, Benito mentioned personal trainers really have a way to just get in your business and, and push you, and then you feel good at the end. Well, for me, it's not as much the personal trainers; it's the doctors. In my 20s, I remember going to the doctor maybe two or three times. I avoid doctors like the plague. There's just something to me about going to someone that's going to tell you everything that's wrong with you. It's like you've heard the term, I'd almost rather not know. And I know that you responsible adults, much like my wife, they go to the doctor every year with just, they don't even think about it. And then we have three kids and we take them to the doctor when they're little all the time. And, and what makes what's so weird to me is you go to the doctor even when you're feeling good, right? And so now that I'm in my 30s, it's this thing where now I have to realize, ooh, I got to toughen up and I got to go to the doctor. And when he sees you, it's just the questions that he asks. And he knows you because you've been there before. He says, well, Joel, let's go through a checklist. He sits behind a computer and he says, Joel, let's see, uh, are you smoking, Joel? Uh, no, sir, I'm not. So far, I'm acing this test. Doing a good job. He says, oh, look at this sign and read. And I look at and I go through the letters. And I'm like, can't wait for that one because I got 2020. All right. But then he continues to ask, he says, how's your sleep? Well, I have three kids. That'll answer your question. They're all under six. Um, then he'll continue on and he'll ask the question, Joel, how many times do you work out a week? And I tell him, a week? We're running on that scale, doctor? Give me a month at least. And I start to realize very quickly that he's calling out the areas that I need the most improvement. And he starts to ask more, and he says, well, Joel, let's try to figure this out. What's changed? What do you mean, doctor, what's changed? My metabolism is so slow now that if I sniff a cookie, I gain three pounds. <laughs> it's not like it used to be, doctor. And also, with the kids, every time that my wife has a baby, I gain sympathy weight. And God, I mean, God knows, and you should know, that this is very normal. <laughs> he says, well, Joel, I'd like for you to try better next time. And maybe next time that we come in and you've lost X amount of weight. 
and I'll tell you what the X is. <laughs> but then, what's interesting about it is he says, Joel, seriously though, there are some side effects to, you know, being overweight can cause some, some different things. So the curious Joel uh, of myself will go on Google. Bad idea. Um, and you'll ask, what are the side effects of potentially being overweight? And you might come up with things like this, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high uh, heart disease, stroke, certain types of cancer, certain types of cancer, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, fatty liver disease, kidney disease, and many more that I'll leave out of here. And if you start to dig into the side effects of each one of those, just kill me now, doctor. Uh, just the pain and suffering, we could be done with it. And really, you might be asking yourself, why get so morbid so quickly? But the reality is, is that the minor prophets have a tendency of doing that. They'll give you that doctor's report you weren't ready for, you thought you were healthy, you thought you were good. And he comes and tells you the things that, are, that you really need to work on. And Amos is no exception, in fact, might be one of the hardest ones in the entire group of the minor prophets. But before we dive into the content, I want to kind of put us in that moment. We're going to go back to 760 to 750 BC. And these were good economic times. When you're reading throughout, understand that they were in a very, quote unquote, good phase of their times as Israelites. Their economy was high, there wasn't a lot of unemployment. I could just imagine that King Jeroboam II was walking around the streets saying, we're going to make Israel great again. Israel is the best it's ever been. Israel is amazing. You're so lucky to be in Israel. I could just imagine him declaring that because it was the truth. It was the truth in certain areas, though. Because King Jeroboam II was also one of the most unspiritual, and one of the most uh, anti-God leaders that they had in that time. But again, times are good, right? And that's the context, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we can assimilate to 2,700 years ago. So as you're reading, and as we're reading this, understand that in general, times were good. But we're going to focus today in Amos in two kind of major categories. There is so much to cover here that we could do four sermon series. But we're going to sum this up into two major categories. What can we learn about Amos' life? What can we learn about him as an individual? And then, what do we learn? What are the key takeaways from his message? So the first thing I want to do is talk about Amos. We're going to call him Famous Amos for the sake of it. It just rhymes and sounds good. Uh, but it's really the opposite. He was, I would say, he would be an infamous uh, prophet. He'd be one that, uh, as you hear what he says, he was, he was very unpopular. So he was famous for being one of the most unpopular prophets of those days. But he was also unpopular because he wasn't cut from the prophet cloth. See, in those days, God spoke to prophets, which then would speak to Israel. Not like you and I, where we can pray on our knees, we can ask the Holy Spirit to share what He wants in our lives, and we hear from God. It wasn't like that in those days. So the prophets were, were very, very key people to those times. 
And so they came a lot of times from a lineage of prophets, a family of prophets. You kind of grew up learning about prophecy. You went to prophecy camp. You went to prophecy, everything that's prophecy, and you grow up and you're ready for the day. Was that the case with Amos? No. See, Amos, in chapter, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, says the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. He was a shepherd. And there's so many references about shepherds that I could spend, we could spend a whole sermon on the topic of shepherds. But just know that it was a lower level position. It wasn't a prestigious position. But we see that phrase used throughout the gospel. In fact, Jesus was known as the good shepherd. And there's a lot of different things. And again, we could spend a lot of time there. But what we learn immediately from Amos' life is that God will use ordinary people to share his message to others. And you know, here we are today where we can hear from God directly. And I want you to know that if you hear from God, share. You know, if, you, if there's someone that God places on your heart and you've been praying, and for whatever reason you can't get that person out of your mind, tell them, for whatever reason, you've been on my heart, you've been on my mind, I need to tell you that because God wants to do something. So many times we kind of take this position of it's not my responsibility. I'll let the pastor, I'll let the prayer team do that. But what we see here is that if Amos would have taken that attitude, God's people wouldn't have heard this message and we wouldn't have heard this message today. And so it's really important that we enter into whatever God wants us to say, whatever he wants us to do. And we learn very quickly that his message can sometimes be unpopular. And so pleasing God can mean disappointing people. We learn that from Amos right off the bat. And it's totally evident throughout the passage. But today I want to just read. It's going to be a longer passage I'm going to read. But I, you really need to hear it so it comes to life. It's bold. It's powerful. You'll see Amos' attitude right from the top. We're going to jump over to Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Follow along, it's a long one. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, he's tattletaling, right? He's tattletaling to the king. Listen, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. And Israel must go into exile away from his land. Whew. Amaziah is just trying to stir up some trouble here. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it's the temple of the kingdom. Verse 14. Look at Amos' reply. Then Amos answered to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs, which really means he was a fig tree farmer. That's what he was. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm going to prophesy to you directly, Amaziah. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, 
and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. That man was confronted by Amaziah, and he didn't care. That's what we learned from Amos. He knew God's word was God's word. He didn't back down. He didn't say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I got to tell you this. God told me and I got to do my part. <laughs> he didn't do that. He said, I know who I am. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a victory farmer. But God told me to say this. And in fact, while you're here, I'll share a prophecy directly to you. <laughs> he did not back down. And this is just going to be a, a, this is a snip of the things that he shares with all of his people. So I'm going to dive in because now we want to learn about what, what was it about his message that we can really take away. So he kicks off in chapter 1 and 2, and I won't read all of it because it's quite a bit. But in chapter 1 and 2, Amos starts calling out all the different nations. He starts declaring judgment, God's judgment on all the different nations. He goes one by one. He goes to Damascus and he shares God's words to Damascus. He goes to Gaza, to Tyre, to Edom, to Ammon, to Moab, to Judah, and he announces judgments of all of them. Israel's feeling pretty good about now. Because you've got to remember the way that the prophets prophesied was out in public. They would just stand and just share God's word. So as he gets an audience, it's almost like he's giving them the people's uh, announcement, right? He's, he's sharing about everyone else, all of the neighboring countries. And if you look, if you plot these on the map, you'll see that they're all surrounded around Israel. But he doesn't call out Israel yet. You know, I'm, a, I'm the youngest of four boys. I mean, I'm sorry, of four children, three boys and one girl. And I remember, and if you grew up in a Hispanic household, you will remember, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. What were Saturdays? In a Hispanic household for it. Cleaning house. Cleaning. You bet. If you were in a Hispanic household, you were waking up early. It didn't matter if that was your sleep-in day. It didn't matter. You're waking up because if your mom didn't knock on your door, the vacuum hitting your door would surely wake you up. And so would all the cabinets, everything coming out and everything being clean. Welcome to my life as a Hispanic uh, young man. But I was the youngest. So my mom would start with the oldest. Hey, you guys, do your clothes. Do this, do this. And I'm just like, yes. And, you know, I'm mom's favorite, I think. That's, done. That's what the babies do. And then she goes on. Then she gives my sister a big task. Because she's the only girl. And she's got to learn how to do this. Because in the future, she's got to be a good wife. And blah, blah, blah. Mom's got to you know, teach the daughter the ways. So my sister would get all the, you know, she'd get the bathrooms and she'd get the hard tasks. And I'm just sitting there just living in the back corner like mom's not going to call on me. But we all know Hispanic woman's judgment is real. <laughs> that chancletazo. It's real. And so surely she would get to me. 
I always would think I'd avoid it. But by the time she got to me, she'd say, Joel, here's the pledge. Here's the, you know, the rag. And I don't know about you, I grew up in the 90s. There was a lot of shiny wood in those days. Pledge was in its fullest force. And I remember having to take Encyclopedia Britannica out and go one by one and clean all back there. It's the days before Google, young kids. Um, but I remember feeling the same way. But when judgment came to me, it came to me hard. And I had to do other things. But I was very quick because I wanted to go out and play. Israel was probably feeling the same way. Lord, you guys see what, he's, what, what Amos is telling everyone else? But when it was their turn, we learned very quickly that God's justice is for everyone. It's for everyone. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And if you ever felt that you know, there's something unfair happened, just know that God's justice is real and it's for everyone. I promise you that, without a shadow of a doubt, that God's justice is for everyone. And it's easy to start playing the comparison game like Israel may have. And you might say, hey, look at, look at that person. Look at my neighbors across the street. I saw them arguing the other day. Oh, look at that person. They, they don't even let their kids play outside. What terrible parents. And then you start going through all this comparison game. But that's not what God wants you to do. And today, as you hear God's word, you might think of somebody else. And you might think of your husband or wife or your kids or someone else. But I want you to focus on what is God telling you to do today. And so he goes in and he starts the words on Israel. Now he's shared little bits of pieces on the other ones. But when he got to Israel, he spent multiple chapters on them. Okay, you can go read and you can spend time looking at all those. But we're going to take a couple of those and look at them, what he addresses. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. We see it then played out. I'm going to read here in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. You will have planted lush vineyards. You will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great is your sin. There are those who oppress the innocent. And take bribes to deprive the poor of justice in courts. Just to sum up what some of Amos is talking about here, he is calling out social injustice issues. He's clearly talking about how Israel was dealing with the poor. But not only how he was they were dealing, but they were cheating them. They weren't giving them the right position in courts. They were doing things to them to take advantage of the things they wanted to do. You know, I was just listening to the Gospel Coalition group. Great leaders, go check them out. John Piper, Tim Keller, um, other, other pastors. They had pastors from everywhere that came, and they were talking about social injustice issues. 
And one of the things that I was looking at, as modern day Christian leaders were talking about these issues, they said, we don't do this enough. We don't put people in the rooms that are working with different people in different parts of the world, and we don't talk about racial tensions. We don't talk about social injustice. We don't talk about all these different things. Why? Because we don't want to make someone mad. Or because we don't want to go there. Or because we don't want to talk about political issues. And you might be saying, Joel, this sounds like an agenda of the left. This sounds like a democratic agenda. Some of you guys might say, this sounds more like a Republican issue. This is why we're where we're at. The richer keep getting richer, the poor keep... I'm going to tell you something, and this is what is the problem of our church today. And it's the problem they had then. Is we like to go to King Jeroboam to go resolve this issue. We like to go to others. We like to look at our political parties. We like to go to, uh, we answer things in how the politicians answer them. We take issues on like the politicians do. But I want you to know that as God's church, we're not to go to the left, we're not to go to the right, we're to go to the center, which is Jesus. And that is where we go for how we should deal with the poor. How we should deal with social injustice issues. And Amos addressed them then, and I'm glad that we as a church can address them now. But you know what? You should be very proud of yourself because Freedom Church is not a church that turns a blind eye to those that are in need. Because when the, the city of Round Rock goes and asks for 70 volunteers, that's a lot. How many does Freedom Church bring? Over 100. Right? Because we're out to serve the community that we live in. And when we're in the middle of raising funds and we're trying to get the building and we're trying to do all this stuff, have we backed down on our missionaries and on missions? No. And you'll continue to see missionaries come through and, and talk about what they're doing in their different countries. And we're going to continue to be generous to those people. And God will continue to work through this church. But Amos doesn't just call out the issue. He goes a step deeper. And what we learn from Amos' message here is that every person matters to God. If they matter to God, they should matter to us. So next time you're thinking about that person, whether you're going to help them or not, or whatever it is, just know that in God's eyes, God loves them too. And that's all you need to know. That is all you need to know. <sighs> Amos' words are heavy, guys. They are, they are heavy. Um, but Amos doesn't leave it there. He talks about the why. He goes deeper. And as he goes later on in the passage, he says, do you guys want to know why you guys are this way? Charles Spurgeon, the great leader, calls out in his, one of his sermons, on Amos, he says that Israel has become three things, which is causing them to do and react the way that they're reacting. They've become apathetic, self-indulgent, and became procrastinators. That is what's causing them to do what they're doing to the poor. Let's continue to read, because Amos calls it out deeper. Amos chapter 6, verses 1. We're going to jump to 4, then we're going to read 6 and 7. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You noble men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. 
You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. That would be like uh, your Serta Eye Comfort beds and your purple and Casper mattresses. You dine on choice lamb and fat calves. Let's call that Uchi or uh, whatever nice restaurant that you like to go to in Austin. Austin's got a lot of good food there. That's, that's a big problem. Um, <laughs> you drink wine by the bowl full and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you'll be amongst the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. And if that's not clear enough, jump so let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. This one's going to stink. Just stop. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. On Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Woo! Amos is calling out everything that, that is there and everything that's visible and not visible. But I can just imagine, he's, he's just a shepherd, right? These are the richest women of the times. It would be like the desperate housewives of Israel County. <laughs> right? These are the women that are being followed around. Hey, what's Margaret been up to? Ooh, she just got a new this. She got a new donkey. I saw her walking around. She's got new sandals on. I mean, that's who he calls cows. <laughs> but he says... You are so full of yourselves, Israel, that you, you've forgotten everyone else. But not only have you forgotten God's people and other people, but you've trampled on them so you can continue to do the things that you want to do. And so he digs deeper. Do you think it ends there? He keeps digging. Because what happens is, is the moment we forget about those in need, then it becomes about us. Look at what happens to our worship to the Lord. It's crazy. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 23. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will not have regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on them, or roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. As one of the worship pastors here at Freedom Church, this one hurts. And I'll tell you that I've been involved in worship since I was, believe it or not, six years old. I was a little drummer behind a big old drum set when my dad was a pastor just starting up churches. And I'll tell you that throughout the course of this time, I've had to inspect my heart. I've had to inspect my heart. And even times here at Freedom Church, I've had to inspect my heart. I remember being around 17 years old or so. This was like the peak of my musical journey. I was, I was auditioning 
for a bull ride scholarship to a music school. I was so like, I was so into music. I would practice my friends that would come visit. I used to skateboard, used to play basketball, used to do other things, run around the neighborhood, act like a normal teenage kid. But when music became everything that I was a part of, they'd knock on my door, they'd hear me playing the saxophone. They'd hear me practice. And I'd be there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it was just, I loved it. And it was part of what I did. But I remember also being one of the music directors at my church at the time. Again, 17-year-old kid. And there were many Sundays where I was more interested in the sound of our music than the sound of our worship. I was more interested in the quality of our sound over the quality of our hearts. And I'm going to tell you that as a worship pastor today, I constantly, every week, have to put my musical desires into submission. I have to completely put everything aside to say, God, I can't fake it until I make it. Corporate America teaches us that we can fake it until we make it. If we have a good attitude, if you just ask good questions, if you're a good communicator, you'll get through. You'll learn the ropes. Just fake it until you make it. That's not terrible advice, by the way, in corporate America. But I will say that it's terrible advice when it comes to the worship that we give the Lord every Sunday. You know why? Because God knows the depths of your heart. God knows the depths of everything that you are thinking. You cannot fake it until you make it with the Lord. Why? Because it becomes just like the Israelites. You sing songs, but they sound terrible to the Lord. They sound pretty to you. They sound bad to him. You give offerings to the Lord, and you think, wow, I'm going to give God a lot of money. But he sees your heart, how you're checking your savings account before you give. Right? And I'm going to tell you that I know that this is difficult to swallow. But Amos has taken us through. This is the end result of what we're seeing. It's how you treat the poor. But we're going to go a step deeper. It's because of your selfishness, and this is causing your worship to become cold. God doesn't want cold religion. He wants heartfelt worship. That is what God is interested in. But I love that God does know every part of you. And like I said, you can't fake until you make it with him. So even in Amos, we see glimmers of hope. We see glimmers of Warning the Israelites, saying, hey, you can turn back. You can make a right choice. You see, because every time that a prophet would speak to Israel, he would remind them of all the things that he had done. And he says, I am still with you. The promises that I said to your people that were in Israel uh, when they were in captivity and led out of that are still real today. And so let's look at this glimmer of hope here in chapter 5, verse 21 and 23. There's other pockets throughout, but I want to call this one out. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me, uh, it's chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say it is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have justice or have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. 
And guys, as you're hearing this word throughout Amos, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a false image of how the message, the messages are being shared. I can just imagine, like in chapter 7, Amos talks about the fire and the locust, and Benito showed the locust pictures in the, in the video in the past, where you were able to see that these, these insects would literally come up like swarms and they would just wipe out a whole city. Like that's how nasty these locusts are. And I can just imagine whenever he's prophesying and he talks, because he actually talks about fire and locusts in chapter 7, I can just, the picture that I get because of how strong these words are is that he does it in like a, a vengeful, like, watch out for the locusts. Or watch out for the fire. That's not his attitude at all. In fact, this is where we see God's mercy really in effect. In chapter 7, he says that he sees the vision, but then he prays to the Lord. And he cries out to God and he says, God, just please do not send the locust on his people. God, do not send the fire on his people. And in Amos it says, that God relented. And I'm going to tell you that from our perspective, I don't know, and I'm going to ask, you, ask yourself this question. When was the last time that you cried out to the Lord and you asked Him, God, just please help those, those people at a national level, global level, whatever it is, or even in your neighborhoods. If you know someone that's going through things in your neighborhood, when's the last time that you got on your knees and just cried out to God? said, God, just please have mercy on their lives. They're destroying their lives, but have mercy. As we wrap up the series of the Minor Prophets, we see through Amos' life and through the life of all the prophets, they did not just say things to his people. They lived them to his people. They lived out what it would mean to cry out to the Lord, to share God's word. We don't know what the end of Amos' life is like. We don't know if he ended up in jail or dead, or if he was able to escape and go on to a normal life. We don't know this. But what we do know is that he is hearing from the Lord, and he's doing everything that God's calling him to do. And Amos teaches us this. He teaches us the difference between false hope and a true hope. And Amos does a brilliant job of kind of packaging this together here at the end. And I'm just going to touch on this in Amos chapter 9, verse 11. I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls. I will restore its ruins and will rebuild into what it used to be. And I'm going to tell you that this false hope that we're talking about is everything that the Israelites thought was good. It was the women saying, bring me more to drink. It was the people building mansions. It was the people. All of that was the false hope. But we find that there's a, a true hope. And now we learn that that true hope is one that is more important than anything else. And Amos may have not known it then, but we know it now. He was pointing to one and one only. And that was Jesus. And we as a church this morning know that. And we can say, God, thank you that you now can speak to me directly. That I can accept what it is that you would want me to do with my life moving forward. 
And that I would be able to take these words as a caution to my personal life today. Because even though this was 2,700 years ago, it looks a lot like what I'm going through here in America, in, in suburban Round Rock, and, and even where we live today. These words, I'd say, are, are more true, just as true for me as they were for those people in Israel. I want to leave you with one last thing as we wrap up this morning. And it's an encouragement via a warning, a lot like the doctor's notes at the beginning that I shared. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but this, if there's one warning or one thing I would love for us to take away for all of the minor prophets, it's this. A warning to have a joy of spending time in God's scriptures. And I don't know about you, but you might be struggling with this today. You might be going through a famine of hearing God's word. But God's word is challenging, and I know it, and it stings and it hurts. But it's the truth. And so many times, like I said, we've run to political parties. We've learned, run to leaders. We've run to people at our work and other, other places for answers when all the time God's answers are right here in his word. He wants us to talk about social injustice issues. He wants us to talk about complacency. God wants to teach us about the things that we struggle with because God knows your struggles. He knows where you've gone through, and he knows where you've been. And so I think that we as a church need to continue, although we finished the Minor Prophets, continue studying God's scriptures, even the ones that are harder to understand, even the ones that are harder to spend time with. Whether it's Numbers, whether it's Revelation, whether it's Chronicles, I don't know what it is, but you might may have just skimmed through. I would just pray and ask that you would allow the Bible to go through you. And when it does, it is transformational, and it does things that no one else can do. And so today I want to do two quick things. If every head can bow down and every eye close. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church Podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.